I must be centered. <clears throat> Let's bow together in prayer. Father, what a great Father you are to us. You are slow to chide and quick to bless. You have long-suffering and patience, and you know how to lead your children. We thank you for that. We thank you that as men, we learn from you how to lead our children. And the thing most prevalent is your word that you bring to us every Sunday. And whenever we open our Bibles at home, you're talking to us, telling us who you are, telling us who we are, and telling us of the wonderful grace that you proffer to us in Christ. And we thank you for that. And now we come to look into your word once again, the great chapter on resurrection. And we pray that you would strengthen our resolve to serve you and strengthen our hope in things we cannot see. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, sorry, you have to put up with the rabbinical posture, which is to sit down and teach. <clears throat> There's a little proverb in uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, that says something like this. I'm paraphrasing a little. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, a fourth that never says enough. The barren womb, the grave, the earth that drinks in water, and the fire that says not enough. We know it, although we tend to slide it out of our minds and we don't cogitate on it, that we're all going to die one day. And Solomon is telling us, look, the, the grave is never full. It's got room for more all the time. We've uh, hidden that death. But it's interesting when you read Proverbs, excuse me, Numbers 19, and you think about our time, if you tried to institute that in our time by our culture and our habits, you wouldn't want to be a mortician because you'd never be able to go to church. You'd never be clean. You would be unclean all the time because you're always touching dead bodies. But there's a lesson that God is teaching his people. When you read through uh, books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you see stuff that, uh, well, we don't live by them today because our Lord has come and he has fulfilled all these ritualistic rules and all the sacrificial rules and the red heifer incident, he's fulfilled them all. So they're not applicable in that sense to us. But there are two stages in the church's history. The first stage is what we call the Old Testament, where God is teaching people 
by the things that he has instituted as their culture, their cult, their religion. And they're to learn by them. And uh, sometimes we think the people were stupid and they didn't really learn anything. That's what we're presented with oftentimes. But that's not the case. They weren't stupid and they did learn. But the sad thing is most of them rebelled. And well, that happens uh, with kids that come to church with their parents. And parents teaching them at home. And then they grow up and they heard and they learned, they knew, and then they rebelled. And they go off into whatever the culture has for them, thinking, this is what I want. Well, Paul brings forward Numbers 19 into his argument in 1 Corinthians. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is the greatest chapter on the resurrection. That's what the chapter is all about. It starts out with the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scripture. And he was seen. He appeared. And so there are four elements. Death, burial, resurrection, and manifestation. That's, that's the gospel. That's how we talk to people when we know they're not a believer and we share with them of what Christ has done. This is one of the places we would go. But that's not why Paul has it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has it in 1 Corinthians to remind the people, okay, this is what we preached. And this is what you believed. Unless you believed in vain, meaning what we preached wasn't true, and so he goes through to show them, this is what you believe. Well, then how is it that some of you say there's no resurrection? And so we've gone through that in verses, uh, verses 12 through 19. The logic, the reason, if there's no resurrection, not even Christ was raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, well, then we're still dead in our sins. Those Christians that we have known that have fallen asleep, they're lost and perishing. And our faith is worthless. The preaching's empty. It's a terrible plight. And we're to be pitied. So, number one, he is stressing resurrection by logic. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then Christianity is a lie. Pure and simple. Then he turns to one of the festivals of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 and following, where he's saying, but Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who will be raised. And we looked at that last week. It goes all the way back to at Passover, lifting that sheaf up to God, giving it to God. Of course, you can't get it up there, so you bring it back down, and then the priests get that sheaf for their service. But that's a picture of all the fruit that's going to come in, all the grain that's going to come in. It's a picture of the first, but then a second. Wave is going to happen, and that's what Paul is saying in the second section. Christ was the first to be raised, then 
the rest in their order. And it's clear from the passage, if you just sweep all the cobwebs aside and sweep all the systematic theology aside, not that systematic theology is bad, but when you get stuck in systematic theology, you can't think, you can't go out of the box and look at it afresh. Sweep it aside, and you see in verses 20 through 28, Christ raised, and there will be one more resurrection, and that is of all the dead, when the last enemy is put down. That's when resurrection will take place. That has a lot to say about eschatological systems. Some of you understand that, some of you don't. It's not important this morning. Resurrection is coming. We don't know when. So he says in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are they baptized for them? Well, now, when we come to 1 Corinthians, we don't very often look at verse 29. It remains unimportant to us. Why? Because we have death, burial, resurrection, manifestation. That's where our stress tends to be. And then secondly, we come to 1 Corinthians 15 to prove once again that there is resurrection. Resurrection's coming. That's the main reasons we come to chapter 15. The last half of the chapter, which we will get to not next week or the next week, but the next week after that, has to do with how people are raised and what they'll look like. But then there's verses 29 through 34, and verse 29 focuses on this issue of baptism. I read one commentator who said, well, you know, I've kind of given up. There are 41 different interpretations of verse 29 that I've found within evangelical circles. Why? And what people tend to do is they go out and they survey religious groups from history and they look back into history and they say, well now, where did this practice come from? As you know, Mormons practice this. People are baptized in behalf of someone who's already died. Ah, to make their afterlife better. It's akin to... Uh, Catholicism, where somebody's caught in purgatory and you give some money to spring them forward so they'll get out sooner. But of course, we know that once we've died, after that comes the judgment. Once we've died, there's no changing our future. So when you look at the way this is translated and you see it, you say, well, this seems strange. How could you be baptized for a dead person or on behalf of a dead person? So there are stories about groups of people, for example, where uh, a dead person's laying on a bed and somebody will crawl under the bed. And then along will come the priest, the pastor, and say, do you wish to be baptized? And the person under the bed says, yes, I'd like to be baptized. <laughs> Sounds like a little kid's play, doesn't it? And that's precisely what it is. It's ridiculous. Well, let's just read this translation one more time. 
I, I, I confess, I only looked at the King James and I did look at the ESV and neither one of them satisfied me. So look at verse 29 one more time. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized because of the dead? So we have a little preposition in Greek, and prepositions, you know, they have this basic meaning, and then they spread out all over the place. And this one means for or in behalf of, which would seem then that you could be baptized for someone else. That's not what it's saying, though. It's saying because of. Why would somebody get baptized because of the dead? Of course, it's always helpful to find your answers within the Bible before you go searching outside of the Bible. Always good to look through, but see, we don't know our Bibles very well. Uh, when we come to Numbers chapter 19, for example, in our Bible reading, if we come to Numbers 19, we read it, we scratch our heads, and we say, well, I don't understand that unclean stuff or any of that, and we move on. But chapter 19 of Numbers is the answer. This is what Paul is talking about. Now we've read chapter 19. And so what Paul is claiming is essential. What Paul is claiming, because this is one of his proofs, one proof for resurrection is first fruits. Another proof for resurrection is being baptized because of dead people. Paul is claiming that Numbers 19 teaches resurrection. Does it? The answer is, yes, it does. Numbers 19, you know, falls in the middle section of the book of Numbers. And Numbers is constructed, we wouldn't even guess this. We wouldn't think this way. Numbers is constructed from chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 36 in a chiasm. And once you get to the top of this chiasm, you're going over and you're coming down. Now, on this side of the chiasm, the beginning, it's all about moving into death. And you reach the top, you come down the other side. It's all about moving into life. Well, to make it simple, what happened is Israel went out in the wilderness and God took them to Kadesh Barnea and God said, go in and occupy. And they said, I don't believe we'll do that. They got big giants in there and we're just like little grasshoppers. And so for 40 years, they wandered around dying. Anybody 20 years old and up at the Exodus died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses died in the wilderness. Aaron and Miriam died in the wilderness. They all died. Why? Because of their sin. And so you're working your way to the top of this chiasm, and then all of a sudden, ah, oh, it's time for the new generation, and down you come, and you're back at the border going into, uh, in, into the promised land, and it's life. 
There's a counting of all the people that are going to die on this side. There's a counting on this side of all the people who live life. And what happens is this baptism pushes you over the top down into life. So instead of looking at two million people, look at one person, Israel. His firstborn son, God's firstborn son, in the first half of Numbers, his firstborn son dies. In the second half of Numbers, his firstborn son comes to life. That's Paul's claim. We're going to die. But there's the resurrection of the dead. And so, you know, 19 is here. And it tells us about dying. And it tells us about purification rites. And one can say, oh yeah, this is a picture. This is, uh, this is symbolism. That's all true, but it's symbolism that means something. So let's just lay it out here. There are all different kinds of... Uh, impurities, contagions that filter through Israel. You see them in the Leviticus 11 through 15. And these defile people, they make them unclean. And there are certain ways you deal with uncleanness. In 11 through 15, though, we don't see this one. This one comes in numbers. And what he's saying is death is a contagion. And so Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy is death. Our enemy is death. It interrupts life. It brings about sadness and suffering and turmoil. But everybody's going to die. But when there's death in the Old Testament to teach a lesson, God says, and we don't, I, I, I don't have time to tell you why it's at this particular time, but there is a reason for it. God says, okay, when somebody dies, there is an infection, a disease that comes upon people. So you come up to a dead body, and you reach down and touch it, and you have death in you. Deadness. You've been infected by that dead body. You're at a party, and you're all in this big room, and somebody drops over dead with a heart attack. Everybody in the room, because it's contained, now has the infection, the contagion, death. Well, that's a problem. Because you live in this land, or I'm just going to use the wilderness. It's easier to explain that way. You, you live in this camp with a tabernacle at the center. And in that tabernacle, that's where the holy God lives. He's put his name there. And, he, and we're, here we are on the outside, and we're looking toward there, and we want to come there and sacrifice and sing praises. But God says, no, you can't come because you've got death on you. And death is my enemy, God says. So death should be your enemy too. Death is the curse. In the day you eat, you will die. And so, you know, Adam died. 
But he didn't die the day he ate, not physically. 930 years later, he died. But on that day, he was cast out of God's presence. And we need a new definition for death. Death means you can't go to God. He rejects you. You're dead. And he's a God of the living. So how do you get from death back to life? Well, the whole sacrificial system is illustrating that. And we know that when you come down to Jesus, he's the fulfillment of it. And in Hebrews chapter 9, again, I won't take the time to read because we'll run out of time. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told, everybody remembers, well, the blood of bulls and goats, they, they, they can't take away sin. But if the sprinkling of the blood of calves and goats and ashes cleanse the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus cleanse your evil conscience? That's what Hebrews is saying. All of this in the Old Testament, it's all an illustration. Even the ashes of the heifer are an illustration about death. What's going to bring you to life? It's the blood of Jesus that gives you life. That's what Paul is picking up on. So here it is. You live in Israel, and uh, a family member dies. Well, they didn't have morticians. Because you wouldn't want to be a mortician. You'd never get to go to the tabernacle. So family has to deal with this problem. And so the one who deals with the death within his family is going to take the dead person and they're going to bury the dead person. But in the process of doing that now, they have gotten death on them, a disease, a contagion. They're unclean. And being unclean, they can't go to the tabernacle. But death is this, oh, it's this severe contagion. You can, you can touch something that's unclean, and you're unclean until the sun goes down. Not with death. You touch death, and you're unclean for a week, seven days. And if somebody touches you, they got death. So you got to wander out of the camp and stay outside until your purification is taken place. And how do you purify? Well, God set up this system where Israel got a red heifer. And the red heifer was taken outside the camp and it was slaughtered with a knife and blood comes spurting out of it, and Eliezer sticks his finger in the blood, and he turns towards the tabernacle, and he shakes that blood off his finger seven times. Why? Because when sinful people, infected people, live in God's midst, they bring infection to his stuff, his tent, his altar, his tables, his vessels. They're all infected with death. 
And so Eliezer has to sprinkle seven times to purify the tabernacle because of man and his impurity. Then this animal is taken and it's burnt in fire outside the camp. And then you throw this uh, cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material into the fire. And all of that's to make it flame up red. It's blood. And when it's all burnt up, then someone comes and collects all the ashes, puts them into some kind of container in a clean place outside the camp. And when anybody has the, the contagion of death on them, they come outside the camp. And somebody gets a little water, mixes some of the ashes into it, takes a piece of hyssop and sprinkles it on the guy. Not seven times. Once on the third day of impurity and once on the seventh day of impurity. And if one does not purify himself in this way, he will be cut off from the assembly of Israel which means one of two things. Both are bad. One is, you can never be in the assembly again. You're put out. Well, we know what that looks like in the New Testament. One is put out of the church. If you will not repent, you're put out of the church. It's a sad thing today that the church doesn't put out unrepentant people anymore. Why do we think we're in such a mess? So if you will not be purified, with a guy who comes and sprinkles water that has heifer ashes in it. Now, how does that make you clean? But if you won't do it, then God's going to take care of you. He's either going to kill you, or he's going to make sure you never come back into the camp again. This death contagion, which is a part of the curse, is so severe that any furnishings in your house, they become unclean. They have to be purified. Any people in your house when you die or someone dies have to be purified in the same fashion. And the one who does the purifying becomes unclean and has to wash his clothes and take a bath before he can come back into the camp. And he's not really clean until sundown. And it's at, it's at the evening sacrifice for the nation of Israel, the ascension goes up and people are purified who are doing what God tells them to do in the purification rites. So there are a few things then we take from this. One is resurrection is taught. How so? I touch a, I touch a dead body. Or I'm walking through the grass one day and I step on a grave. Or I'm digging in my garden and I turn up a bone. It turns out to be human. I have the disease on me now, the contagion. And I'm going to die unless... I get 
purification. Or, to put it another way, I'm dead. Nothing's done. I am dead. I'm thrown out of Israel. And if you're not in Israel, oh my goodness, it's like being thrown out of the church. There's no salvation outside of the church. There's no salvation outside of Israel. You're out. You're lost. What happens? You walk outside the camp, and you find that clean place where the ashes are, and someone steps out with a with some running water, the water of life, and mixes the ashes in a little container, and they come with that sprig of uh, hyssop, and they sprinkle it on you, and it reminds you of what? It reminds you of Israel at the Exodus. They're in their houses, and all around the house, the blood's been painted and you're in there waiting for your exodus. It's a picture of being in the womb. You're in the womb, and you got to come through this blood to get out, and life begins. Well, now, you've died because of the death contagion, and what's going to give you life? Well, the ashes of the heifer. And if you won't take it, if you say, well... Nobody saw me touch that dead body. I can just go to, up to the tabernacle today. Nobody has to know. God knows. God knows. And that person will be cut off from God's people. Now, that tells you how serious the curse is. We have it easy today, if I could put it that way. Because when we sin, we stop and we ask the Lord to forgive us. And he's gracious and he forgives us. It can be too easy at times, so we think nothing of it. And then we just fall into sin. Because it's so easy to say, hey, Lord, forgive me. You promised you'd forgive me. By the blood of Jesus, forgive me. But in Israel's day, you had to actually do stuff like kill an animal. You had to do stuff like skin the animal, cut the animal up. You had to do that. You had to go out of the camp where all could see you on the way to the ash. Oh, he touched a dead body. But you had to do it. And of course, Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and calves and goats, they can't take away sin. They're just a symbol, Hebrews 9 tells us, until the time of reformation comes. And so the ashes of the heifer with the cedar in it and the scarlet thread in it and the hyssop in it that all then burn down, those ashes are just a symbol And it's a symbol that our sin has gone on to Christ. And he's borne the ultimate in our place. It's a picture of being burned up. And being burned up in Israel's day was a sign of covenantal curse. 
you've got to get that ash on you to be cleansed. And you've got to get that blood of Jesus on you to be cleansed. Of course, in the Old Testament, that was literal. You had to have the ashes on you. That was literal. Blood was sprinkled on you. But the New Testament says that's a symbol. It's a sign. Because that stuff in the end really never helps. What you need is the blood of Jesus. And animal blood and ashes, well, yeah, they set the flesh apart as pure. So once you were unclean, of course, you couldn't come to the tabernacle and see God. He's holy. He can't, he can't, he can't look on uncleanness. He can't look on sin. So you really did have to do it or you couldn't fellowship with God. It's not a symbol in the sense that, oh, it mean, it's totally meaningless. If you, unless you got the blood on you or you got the ashes on you, you weren't purified in the flesh to even go up to the tabernacle. In other words, you can't be near God. You're like Adam. You're outside the garden. How do I get in? Well, you, you go through this, this picture, this symbol that gets you in, but by the time you come to the New Testament, then it's stated outright. It is a symbol. What you need is real, true, life, blood. To be clean. That's how bad the curse is. It's death. And what can make you alive? Only Jesus can. So, Paul is using this in one little verse. And he says, you know, why were they baptized because of the dead. Well, it's because when he touched the dead body, he had the, he's now dead. And it's this baptism that's set up to cleanse you. Now, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, we're told, well, all of these things are just symbols of, uh, you know, calves and foods and drink and, and baptisms. Your Bible probably says wash it, washings, but the word is baptisms. Because it's looking back to this. These Old Testament cleansing rites are called baptisms. Well, we have a baptism. It's not like that baptism. It's analogous to it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when we're baptized, we're buried with him in baptism and we're raised with him in resurrection. Now, when you became a Christian, when you trusted Christ, you should have been baptized at the very moment you trusted Christ. That's how the book of Acts looks at it. We've separated saving faith from baptism, and we say baptism doesn't save you. And of course, in one sense, that's true. Only saving faith saves you, and of course, we know that's true. But you see, they're not separated in the Bible. They are in time, but not in the Bible. So on the day of Pentecost, anyone who believed was baptized right then and there. 
That's the way baptism is supposed to be, which clues you into one thing. You cannot really examine someone well enough to say, oh yeah, I know you're a Christian. If faith and baptism go together, you can't step back and say, okay, let's have that Baptist code. What's the Baptist code? Well, we've got to watch you and see if your life has changed to know if you're really a Christian. Then we'll baptize you. That's not how it works in the Bible. In the Bible, you believe, and on Pentecost Day, you get baptized, same day. So we have an analogy to what was going on in the Old Testament, and yet we, we live on the good side of the analogy, that is, we believe, and we're baptized into Christ. We've come into Christ, and all of our sin is forgiven. Now, don't go away saying, Craig said you can't go to heaven unless you're baptized. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we've separated the two. The Bible hasn't. They see them at, the Bible sees it as one event. Faith, which results in baptism. So, in the New Testament, we do have this analogy. And we know that when you're baptized, Paul tells us it's a symbol of death. And when you come up out of the water, if you're being dunked, then it's a symbol of life. Not everybody uses dunking. Well, it's called immersion. Not everybody uses that. Lots of churches use sprinkling. Why? Because the baptisms of the Old Testament were just that, sprinklings. And if you take out your concordance and you look up sprinkle and drive your way through the Old Testament into the New Testament where the word sprinkle is too, you'll learn a lot of lessons. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything other than, you know, it, it's a sprinkling. And it, it symbolizes death. You're being drowned in this torrent of water. And then you come through on the other side. So Paul says, look back. Somehow we tend to think, well, um, I can't understand this, so sorry. I can't understand this, so it must not be important. But all the Old Testament is important and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be adequate, thoroughly equipped. And so you come to something like Numbers 19. And all of a sudden you see, you know, God was teaching his children. Galatians tell, says that Jewish people used to be children, but now they've matured. God was teaching them. And somebody did not literally die, except for the dead body you're touching. They are literally dead. But when you come and touch it, you die too. Like we say happens in baptism. He died with Christ. And then when you purified, you came up. Like we say when we dunk somebody. They go down in like a tomb, and they come up like they're alive. Well, that happens literally in 
faith, Christian baptism. You're dead and you come to life spiritually. Now, think about Numbers 19. And when you got this disease, this contagion on you, because you touched a dead body, or you happened to be at somebody's house when someone died. Someone died in the house when I was a kid. I don't know how old I was. Probably in grade school. We had a, we had a great friend from Montana who came to visit us. And he, he died when I was off at school in my house. And when I came home, they hadn't picked him up yet. He was under a blanket. My mother spread a blanket over him. So if that were Old Testament time, my mother and I would have been unclean because we were in the house where he was. And you're unclean for seven days, and you have to be purified on the third day, and on the seventh day, do you suppose those are arbitrary? Of course not, because God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. And we know everywhere you look in the Bible, when you're, when you're seeing the number seven, the seven, okay, oh, of course it means completion. That's just a simple explanation, though. Because that's when heaven and earth were completed in seven days and God rested. And you know it has something to do with creation. And then you say to yourself, self, why did you have to have hyssop sprinkled ashes and water on you on the third day? And why on the seventh day? And I ask you, why? Why not the second and the fifth? Well, there's only one way you can figure that out. And you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible and look at creation. See what happened on those days. And on day three, vegetation began to grow on the ground. Grain and fruit, not broccoli. And man is created on the sixth day, and what's he created from? The ground. And man is supposed to produce fruit, like a fruit tree. Green, like a head of wheat. That's what we're supposed to produce. And we said it last week. Jesus says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides by itself. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. So on third day, the ground that God created, and you are ground, started springing forth fruit. So on day three, hyssop with water and ashes is waved over you and sprinkled on you, and you come alive. You were dead, but now you're fruit-bearing. You're alive again. You're still not clean. Your cleaning is not done yet. And then it rolls around to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, what? Well, God rested from all his work. It's the Sabbath. And on the seventh day, the guy comes along again with his little container of water and, and ashes in it, and he puts his... He, I'm supposed to quit. He puts, his, uh, he puts his hyssop in it and sprinkles you again on the seventh day. Okay, and by evening, you're clean. Well, evening mean what, means what? Evening means now it's day eight. You've been unclean for a whole week, 
And at the very end, as time runs out in the Hebrew clock, and the burnt offering goes up for the evening sacrifice, at that moment, the new day has begun and you are clean. Day eight. And day eight in the Bible is always important. It signifies a new week, a new creation. That's why a child was circumcised on the eighth day. He comes into the world as just anybody with all of his sin, and on the eighth day, he's circumcised, and he is a member of Israel. A picture, a symbol of new life. That's what happened in Numbers. And Paul is saying, hey, you look back to Numbers. Take a good look at Numbers, and you'll discover Resurrection was taught in the Old Testament. In a symbol, no doubt. But there it is. I don't know if you guys know it, but people are all hung up about the idea that the Old Testament doesn't teach resurrection. Unknown to them. Not really their hope. That's not true. They weren't dumb people. They understood. So Paul is saying, look, brothers and sisters, I and Peter and others came and taught you. And we preached the same good news. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ rose again according to the scriptures. And Christ was seen by witnesses. This all tells us that Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, you too will rise from the dead. And Jesus right now, as we saw last week, is at the right hand of the Father where he's seated until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And everything will be under his feet. And hey, we're in him. And so everything's under our feet, which is what God made us to be in charge. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. But if resurrection of the dead is false, then 1 Corinthians 15 is false, and Jesus is false, and you and I are false, and we've been lying to the world. It all hangs on resurrection. He was handed over because of our transgressions. That word in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, is the word Judas handed him over. In this case, in Romans, the father handed him over to be the sacrifice for our sins, to pay the penalty for us. And he was, ra he was raised because of our justification. Resurrection is the proof that everything Jesus said is true and that you and I are free from our sin. We're free from its penalty. We are free from its power. And we one day will be free from the presence of sin. And so now back to numbers on the third day. Uh, you get that shake, and you come alive as dirt to bear new fruit. 
And on the seventh day, you get that shake and you come alive. Now what? As a new person, fully cleansed. When you came to faith in Christ, that was day three because Jesus was buried and rose again on the third day. And you were made alive in faith spiritually. You're still living in a dead body. It's going to die. Mine feels it immensely right now. It's dying. But there'll be a second resurrection. And the second resurrection comes on the end of day seven. And that's when we will rise bodily. There's a first and a second. There's, if you want to put it this way, a spiritual resurrection and then the bodily resurrection. Now, when people die, there are two deaths. First comes the physical death. Then comes the second death. The second death is the lake of fire. That's not what you want. You want on that seventh day, at the end of the day, to be raised in a body just like Jesus was. And so with one simple little verse that takes some pondering, and if translated correctly, uh, I should rephrase that, I'm not saying the translation in the Bible I'm reading is incorrect. I'm saying that's not the only way to translate it. So I'm not saying they did an evil deed by translating it that way or they did something wrong. I am saying the way I translated it is better and it answers the question, how does this fit in this passage? Because it guarantees resurrection by symbol. Somebody dies with the contagion, the contagion is wiped away, and somebody comes to life. Somebody's put outside with the contagion and cannot see God. Somebody comes alive and can come right back in and see God. Adam dies, he's outside of the garden, but when Jesus dies for him, he can come right back into the garden and see God. Let's stand together. Father, we want to thank you for our Savior who is the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And we thank you that you've opened our hearts to see the truth. You've given us the gift of faith. We have new life residing in us because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so we know that when we die, on that great resurrection day, we will rise again. And we give you thanks for it. In Christ's name, amen.